Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. This week on The Agenda, the menace of microplastics. We'll find out what the world needs to do to rid our oceans of five trillion pieces of trash. Billions upon billions of items of plastic waste are choking our oceans. Studies show around a truckload of plastic is dumped in the ocean every minute. It's harmful to plants and wildlife and is a growing threat to human health. Much of the rubbish in our ocean ends up as microplastics, pieces of debris smaller than a grain of rice under 5 millimetres long. It's estimated there are now more than 5.25 trillion of them littering our ocean floors and they're ending up in the human food chain. A recent report showed 83% of tap water samples from major metropolitan areas around the world have been contaminated with plastic fibres. 93% of bottled water tested showed some sign of microplastic contamination too. Microplastics come from everything, from food wrappers to cosmetics, car tyres to paint and clothing. For example, a single fleece jacket sheds up to 250,000 microfibers during a single wash. And this year, for the first time, scientists have found microsamples of plastic bottles and carrier bags in human blood, which means these tiny particles can travel around the body and get lodged in organs like the lungs. So microplastics have now been found inside the human body. But what does that really mean? Joining me now is Dr. Laura Sadovsky, Senior Lecturer in Respiratory Medicine at Hull York Medical School, who carried out the research which found microplastics in the lungs. So, Laura, thank you ever so much for, for coming on the programme so we can dig into this. But let, let's start at the very beginning. When you embarked on this study, what, what were you looking for? Originally, we were trying to find out whether there were microplastics in the air that we believed and what was the consequence of that. So there's been quite a lot of research done which has shown that there are microplastics in the aquatic environment, but there's a lot less known about what's in the air that we breathe. So that was our original aim. And we started off our research by measuring microplastics from the air. So we started off with a study looking at microplastics in the household environment. And then we looked at microplastics that were in the outside environment. So we essentially collected dust, if you like, um, and analyzed it using the micro FTIR to see whether there was plastic present and what were the characteristics of that plastic. So what were the sizes um, and what were the shapes? And, and we were? found the, that there God. were plastics in the air that we were breathing and we found um, reoccurring plastic types. So things like PET, so polyethylene terephthalate and PP, so polypropylene. Um, and the, the main type of plastic that we were finding in terms of shape was fibres. So these are plastics which are used regularly around the house. Um, and these are often found in textiles, fabrics, um, soft furnishings, but also the clothes that we wear um, and also things like single-use plastics, so plastic water bottles, etc. 
I know you started off looking at household dust, but you know, so how surprised were you by what you found? So we identified that there were microplastics in the human lungs. Um, so as we had found microplastics um, in the home environment, indicating that it was in the air that we breathe, I guess that we weren't actually surprised that we found it in human lung tissue. For us, the surprise was the size of those plastic particles in the lung tissue and how deep that plastic got, so how low in the lungs it got. So when you talk about that size and, and where it got to in, in, in the system, you know, what, what are we talking about? Are we talking about something that the, the, is visible to the eye or, or that's just in the air? Microplastics are between one micrometer and five millimeters. That's the definition that we, we've used for this study. Um, although we didn't particularly find them at the size of five millimetres, which you would be able to see with, with the, the, the naked eye, um, we were still finding them within the millimetre size, if that makes sense. Microplastics have been found in the bloodstream. So what does that mean for, for our general health? That's a really good question. And at the moment, we don't know. So that really is the next step within the scientific community. So for those of us that are looking at microplastics, obviously, like you said, we've found microplastics in human lung tissue and we have found microplastics um, within the group from the Netherlands found microplastics within human blood. So now the key thing is to find out whether that matters. Is it important? Is it having a detrimental effect? Um, and at this stage, we don't know. There are some studies out there which have looked at microplastics um, on human cell cultures. So these are within a laboratory setting. They're not within whole people. And at the, the sort of higher concentrations that they've been tested in, they did find that um, there were some, some effects, so things like inflammation, um, but knowing now what we know, having found it in tissue and in blood, um, we can perform more realistic studies looking at specific types of plastics, specific shapes of plastics and the sort of levels that we're actually finding in, in the human body. Um, and that really is the next step. Do you worry that this is just too big to tackle, that we're breathing in these microplastics, that, that there's not enough funding to study it the way you'd like it? Is it too big to tackle? I don't think it's too big to tackle at the moment. I think with the scientific community, um, there's enough of an interest, there's public interest. I think that, you know, um, as, as a... As a as a community, we can we can pull together and we can try and work out whether there's a detrimental effect. And also there's the scientists out there working to try and reduce the microplastics, um, try and reduce what's going on. So I think as a, as a community, we can all pull together and do something about it. Some really interesting findings there. Thank you so much for, for talking us through the study. Dr. Laura Sadowski from the Hull York Medical School. Thank you. Thank you. 
A report from Environmental Action in 2021 claimed that, perhaps surprisingly, paint is the single largest contributor to ocean microplastics pollution. So let's talk more about that now and how it might be solved. I'm joined from Geneva by Declan McAdams, who's the co-founder and chair of Norwegian startup Pinovo. Um, Declan, thanks ever so much for coming on. So talk, talk us through it. You know, why is paint such a problem when it comes to microplastics in the ocean? Paint is actually made up of a lot of plastic. On average, 50% of all paint is made of plastic. For heavy industrial marine paints, it's actually higher than that. For domestic paints, which we use to decorate our homes, it can be between zero and 10%. So on average, about half of all paint is plastic. The second thing is, it's not to say that paint is bad per se. The problem is actually mismanaged paint. What does that mean? Mismanaged paint is paint that's lost into the environment either at the time of application, overspraying or washing your brushes under a tap in a sink, at maintenance, and this is in an industrial environment where they strip off the old paint before repainting, and then end of life, these awful scenes you see of ships being rolled up onto beaches in Bangladesh and being stripped with the huge environmental and human catastrophe. But how does this microplastic from paint end up in rivers, in oceans? Well, in practical terms, a lot of industry and obviously marine activity is located at, in or over the water. You think about it, all the bridges over the water, shipyards, petrochemical plants, nuclear plants, generally beside the sea. On the sea, ships, oil rigs and now wind turbines. So we don't think about it, but from an industrial point of view, a lot of activity takes place at, on or over the sea. And then you have what they call runoff. So you rinse your paintbrushes under a tap. Where does that go? It goes down through the water systems and into the sea, ultimately. But you've got a product that might be able to tackle this problem. Talk us through how that works. Yes, we do. The traditional methods of taking off paint before you repainted an object were a needle gun, these are really basic, but they basically just scrape off the old paint. But the bigger activity is with sandblasting or high pressure water jetting. And they, what they do is they blast off the old paint, crush it into microplastic, and if it's not collected, which for the most part it's not, it ends up in the ocean or the environment. What we do is essentially, in very simple terms, attach a vacuum cleaner to the end of the blasting tool. So no paint residuals or grit or dust enter the ocean or the environment. And then on top of that, what we do is we recycle the grit up to 20 times, which means there's about 80% less grit usage, which given the weight of grit, the cost of grit, and the cost of transport of grit, means we actually lower the CO2 emissions of using vacuum blasting compared to the traditional methods of blasting. So what kind of impact is this technology having, or is it just touching the surface? No, marine and industrial activity make up about 36%. Over a third of all of the paint is in marine and industrial. And that's where we can have an impact. Now, that's a very big figure. When you think about it, that the EA report identified total microplastic leakage into the ocean at 1.9 million tonnes per annum. That's enormous. And again, put that into perspective, what they call macroplastic, which is plastic bottles, straws, single-use plastics. The UN says that there's about 8 million tonnes of macroplastics, the stuff we can see and touch and feel, end up in the ocean every year. Now, if on top of that, we're saying that 
1.9 million tonnes comes from paint alone, ignoring tyres, textiles, pellets as sources of microplastics. This is a very big figure. So if we can deal with 36% or our technology like us can deal with 36% of this problem of 1.9 million, that's going to have a big impact. I mean, I'll give you another simple figure. We have calculated that using one of our machines for one day stops one kilo of paint microplastics entering the ocean. You say, well, so what? Well, one kilo of microplastics is the equivalent of 100, 100 empty half-litre plastic bottles. Each half-litre plastic bottle weighs about 10 grams. So if you used one machine, one vacuum plastic machine, all day or every day for a year, that stops 36,000 plastic bottles entering the ocean. That's something I think people can relate to. And that's a big impact. It is a big problem and the urgency to tackle it is, is real. But is it profitable? Because the technology you're talking about, that innovation, it, it's expensive at a time when many around the world are counting out their pennies and thinking this is not a priority. Well, in fact, that's not the case, <laughs> believe it or not. Using vacuum blasting is actually up to 60% cheaper than the traditional methods. Why? Because if you use vacuum blasting, there's no need to sheet, there's no need to scaffold, and there's no need to clean up afterwards. But this is all predicated on the fact that the traditional methods of blasting, which as I said, were open grip blasting or high pressure water jetting, didn't have this collection capacity. So what happens? The industrial users let the asset rust up to 30 to 50% before they do anything. They do what they call campaign maintenance. So every three to five years, they shut the thing down, cover it up, blast it, and everything with all the consequences. But one of the consequences of this uh, approach, campaign maintenance, is in letting the asset rot, rust 30 to 50%, you have what I call passive emissions. So all of the rust and old paint residuals that are falling into the ocean, off the oil rig, off the bridge, off the ship, are paint microplastics. Now, if you move to continual maintenance, what we do in our house in practical terms, if you see a problem, you stop the problem before it becomes a big problem. Now that wasn't possible with the traditional methods. And with vacuum blasting it is, you take the tool out of the toolbox, you do the piece of work on the spot of rust as it appears, you remove the old paint, create the surface, repaint, and not only is it cheaper, but you actually lengthen the life of your assets. Let's talk about the European Commission, uh, because they've got an objective to reduce microplastic emissions by 30% by 2030. So what does it need to do to make sure that happens? Or again, are we looking at a problem that's too big to fix in such a short time frame? No, I mean, I'm a believer. I'm an optimist by nature, and I think most entrepreneurs are, because I think Technology, once it gets a signal from the regulator as to the direction of travel, technology will find solutions. Business will find solutions. Capital will enter in the search of solutions to meet the new regulatory standards. So I certainly believe this is possible. I mean, taking our case, our technology exists. It works. So we can have an impact. We are having an impact today. Um, our technology is out there working, protecting the environment by stopping paint microplastic emissions. So certainly, and there are other vacuum blasting players as well, they can do the same thing. So we call on the EU Commission to, again, go back to my point about regulators, make it clear that the paint industry is required to, one, give more information about the plastic content of their paint, two, inform their customers as the risks of mismanaged paint, and three, 
informed about the measures of stopping it because there are other sources of microplastics, be it textiles, and there are other innovators who are out there finding solutions to those problems as well. So I remain positive. I believe that once the regulators step up, show the direction of travel, industry will change its practices and innovation will create the opportunities and solutions to deliver the result that the Commission wants. What will happen if we don't take greater action on the paint pollution problem? Well, it's part of a bigger picture. I mean, what are we talking about here? We're talking about protecting the ocean. And we all know that the ocean is critical in the context of climate change, livelihoods, the number of people who live beside the sea, who make their livelihoods from the sea. So protecting the ocean is critical. And allowing all of the paint microplastics and all the other forms of pollution that enter the ocean reduces the ocean's capacity to protect us from climate change and all of the other risks that we're facing. So it's not something we can stand by and watch idly. It's something where we have to take action because it's all related. Declan McAdam at Pinovo, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Julia. Still to come here on the agenda, I'll be talking to Emily Stevenson, the Beach Guardian, to discover more about what we could all be doing to clean up our oceans. Find out what the whole world is thinking in the agenda. Welcome back to the agenda. We've heard about the true scale of the microplastics issue and what one industry is doing to address it. But what about our personal responsibility to clean up the planet? I'm joined now by someone who realised there was a real problem when she was only 12 and decided to do something about it. Emily Stevenson, the co-founder of Beach Guardian. Emily, absolute pleasure to, to see you and to have you on the, on the programme. What was it that made you sit up and think, gosh, I, I've got to do something to, to tackle this plastic pollution problem? Well, I think you said it yourself, Juliet, that I have kind of been doing this from such a young age. And I've been very, very fortunate to actually grow up in Cornwall, so right on the coastline. And I've had such wonderful, magical childhood memories of being on the beach, out in the open environment. But unfortunately, plastic has polluted all of those memories. So because I've been exposed to plastic pollution my entire life, it's now why I want to give my life to, to tackling this. And it's that that is the real catalyst for what I do. So talk us through it. What is Beach Guardian? So Beach Guardian is a marine conservation NGO that essentially aims to tackle plastic pollution by empowering communities. Everything we do is about people power, people coming together, taking a stance, taking responsibility and, and really looking after our local environment. So we work in all different areas through education, outreach, working with businesses to, to stop plastic pollution at its source working with policymakers, but also working within healthcare. We've recently started an initiative where we offer social prescribing. So getting people who are struggling with mental health, addiction, loneliness, down on beach cleans to connect, connect with themselves, the environment and other people too. So we do a whole host of stuff really to just tackle plastic pollution. Now, since that first day on the beach, you've become more alert to it. But what have you noticed about the amounts of plastics that are washing up on the seashore? Well, there's two really important things I want to cover here. And that is, if you speak to anybody that visits the area of coastline that we look after here in North Cornwall uh, at Beach Guardian, they will tell you that over the last five years, 
the amount of plastic on the beaches here has decreased. The beaches are looking cleaner. Now, this is, of course, not because there's less plastic going into the ocean. That is not true. There's more and more plastic going into the ocean every single day. But what we're seeing is that people in their everyday lives within the community are taking responsibility. You know, you've got the retired lady that walks her dog every single morning and fills up a poo bag with plastic. You've got a family that goes down after school and they get a bag of plastic. So the beaches are getting cleaner. However, that's just talking about the bigger items. The microplastics, this problem is one that has been increasing noticeably. I actually remember a few years ago at the beach that I grew up on, Travone Bay, I had never seen microplastics on this beach, but we did a beach clean. I remember the exact day, I remember who was there, and I looked in the strand line and suddenly microplastics. And now every day since there's more and more. So, you know, it's really in a short time frame that we're seeing these differences. Um, why do you think that's happening? Well, I think obviously, you know, the, the positive side of things, why the beaches are getting cleaner is because people feel this urgency and this desire and this connection to actually take action and do something. But the problem with microplastics, I think it's been able to go under the radar for such a long time because these particles are so small in size. You know, you've got people that go to the beach for their entire lifetime. I've had a lady join me on a beach clean uh, and she says, you know, I've visited this beach every day for the last 80 years. There isn't a problem with plastic here. But I say, well, actually, look in the sand, look at these microplastics. And it's that real light bulb moment that actually beneath our feet this entire time, there has been this growing problem of microplastics. So now it's up to us doing things like we are today to talk about it, bring awareness to it so we can tackle it. Now, earlier in the programme, we spoke to one of the scientists who discovered microplastics embedded in, in human lungs. Uh, but some of the research that you've been looking at um, also zones in on health aspects, doesn't it? Exactly, yes. Yeah. So my research, uh, I'm currently a PhD student with the University of Exeter and Plymouth Marine Laboratories. And I look at something a little bit different so my research looks at microplastics, but also antimicrobial resistance. So this is the ability for microbes, so some of the most common uh, and, and widespread infections caused by microorganisms, evolving the ability to be resistant to drugs, meaning antibiotics are no longer working. And everybody kind of knows about this problem, at least a little bit within the hospital environment, but actually recently, the, the, the physical environment um, has been shown to be a hotspot for antimicrobial resistance. You know, people using the environment for recreation, for example, are becoming exposed to these drug-resistant, infectious organisms. It's, we've seen that surfers, for example, going into bathing waters become colonized by drug-resistant E. coli, for example. So my research looks at well, in these environments where we have drug-resistant organisms, we also have microplastics. So when the microplastics are in the environment, they become colonized. So uh, the microorganisms attach themselves to microplastics. And then we know that microplastics don't degrade in the environment. We know that they are transported all across oceans into new pristine environments. So could microplastics be exposing people or animals to potentially disease-causing organisms that cannot be treated with antibiotics. So that's really important research, but how can people play their part and, and stop microplastics getting into the ocean? I mean, is, is recycling and litter picking enough? 
I think what's really important to recognize is that microplastic pollution is plastic pollution. And by reducing our consumption of plastics, we're reducing our output of microplastics. You know, one of the most common sources of microplastics just come from larger items that have broken up into these smaller fragments. So if we look at the kind of waste hierarchy, of course, we have recycling as an option, but also we have reducing. If we can reduce our consumption of plastics, ultimately we're reducing the amount of microplastics we're emitting. Another source of microplastics we see here in Cornwall are these tiny little pellets that we call mermaid tears, also known as nurdles. These are the pre-production pellets that all plastics are made of. And so then if we can reduce our consumption of plastics, then we're reducing the amount of pellets that need to be produced. So I think reducing is always a great start, reducing plastics in all areas of our life. But of course, then litter picking is another great thing to do, because if we can take the larger items out of the environment, they're not going to fragment into microplastics, which are considerably harder to remove. So talk about the environment. Emily Stevenson, thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up on a future agenda. Is this the end of globalisation? We'll get the view from one of Britain's best-known businessmen, Sir Martin Sorrell. But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all of the Agenda team here in London, goodbye. <laughs>